This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. My name is John Dunn. Today is March the 4th. All the way back to June of last year, episode 16, James Evans was our guest. He's from CARE, Companions and Animals for Reform and Equity. That was about three weeks after George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. What happened after that tragic event, the outrage, the civil unrest, all sparked difficult conversations about bias, privilege, racism, long overdue conversations that are happening now, including within our field. We have to take a hard look at these issues that have plagued this movement for far too long. So many questions, not all the answers are a mystery. Why are there not more people of color doing this work? Why are women who make up the majority of paid staff across animal sheltering and animal welfare so grossly underrepresented in positions of leadership? How have our individual biases held us back from saving lives? How we judge pet owners, for example, adopters. Those judgments are sometimes driven by a subconscious bias, but let's be honest, sometimes they are very conscious. One I encounter fairly often, too often, is a declaration that all poor people shouldn't own pets. Now, on the whole, as a movement, we've never really tried to address these issues with intention, holistically, but that changed last summer. Or did it? Putting up a well-crafted statement affirming your commitment to social and racial justice, that's a good step, but they're just words on a page. So what has happened at Best Friends? We made that commitment, we put out that statement, and since that time, there have been a lot of conversations, efforts to bring new voices, people to the table, and the implementation of internal programs. And because sharing is a big part of what Best Friends is all about, our hope is that what we are doing in this regard can offer insight into ways to improve your own organization's diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, both internally and externally. Today's episode is an amalgamation of two separate town halls we hosted recently. We've edited them down, so I strongly encourage you to go to bestfriends.org slash podcast. You'll see the link for this episode, 54, and on that page, you will find the full town halls to watch. Now, before we get into that, a reminder that an upcoming episode of the Best Friends podcast will be a game show. Who wants to be a millionaire? Although in our case, it's probably more like, who wants their organization to be a thousand air? Okay, I admit there's some work left to do on the marketing side of things, but we are selecting the contestants and you can only be selected if we know that you want to play. So if you're interested in taking part, head to the website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. You'll see a massive button there. It's orange. It says, I want to play. You can't miss it. That will link you to a form where you can put your name down and opt in. We'll be selecting the participants on March 12th. So time is running out. Get to the website now, bestfriends.org slash podcast. Contestants are playing for a $1,000 unrestricted grant for their network partner. But a reminder, you do not need to be officially affiliated with a network partner. If you are asked to take part, you would just need to select your favorite network partner who would receive the thousand bucks. Now, moving on to today's discussion. The guests are Best Friends CEO, Julie Castle, James Evans, President of CARE, and here's Senior Director of People and Culture at Best Friends, Jose Acano. 
diversity, equity, and inclusion, culture, these are all philosophies. These, this is an ethic. It, I think there's a lot, there's a lot relation to no-kill when we talk about, you know, no-kill as being something that is a philosophy more so than anything. And there's no arrival and then you like check that box and then you're done. You know, it's just kind of a way of making decisions. It's a way of being. I think that about diversity, equity, and inclusion, it is a, a, it needs to be our new way of working, not like a separate strategy, but like it needs to be baked into everything we do, which is why it's very much baked into everything we're doing relating to our culture here at Best Friends. And so from a timing perspective, we were, you know, starting to really identify like, what is the culture that we want to have here at Best Friends? And as we were in this exploration, that is when COVID hit and, and, and George Floyd murder happened. And so it became really important to pause and recognize that diversity, equity, and inclusion needed to play this central role in our culture as we were starting to co-create it with the staff. And something that I knew right away was that I myself have lots of blind spots. I'm by no means an expert in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so I started to seek out people within our organization who were passionate about this and who had also ha who have it, who had experience in this space and looking to our volunteers. Like, you know, we had some folks who have been working in the DEI space for quite some time. And so they, they came on as volunteers and then we started to partner with CARE. We knew we needed a partner in this to help guide us along the way. And we knew that the process of actually developing our diversity, equity, and inclusion work needed to, in and of itself, be an expression of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think part of that meant slowing down, being really thoughtful about where do we start and how do we get as many people as possible involved in this? And I think what some companies do sometimes is, you know, they hire a chief diversity officer, they put, you know, black and brown people on their collateral and they feel like it's done. And we know that that's not it. That might be part of someone's journey to becoming diverse, equitable and inclusive, but it is not the end all be all. And so we quickly started to develop this model and concept of culture councils. And we said, okay, if we start to look at all facets of our operation, the external things, the internal things, and we start to put those in buckets. We identified six different kinds of things, buckets of operations, and we developed these culture councils. And we, we worked to, because at, what you remember at the time, we had a lot of staff saying, we really care about this. We really think we need to do more as an organization. So we knew that the appetite to get involved was there. And so we did. We had this whole nomination process where people raised their hands and we identified what their passions were, why they wanted to be involved in this work. And we actively have about 60 people working on our diversity, equity, inclusion via these culture councils. And we also have a support team like um, that work to just make sure that we are doing whatever we can to create the infrastructure and the systems to help make sure these councils are successful. One of those was in of the of the six councils, there's two co-chairs for each. So we have these 12 people who are leading the efforts. And one of the things you wanted early on was to be integrated into this work. So they became, you know, part of your um, CEO advisory group and they report into you and to the senior leadership team. And so 
these are all the kinds of things that we did to make sure that we are holistically, fully and deeply um, embracing this. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that really concerned me um, when we first started talking about this and really when this, I think the whole country woke up to this, sadly, is that this is a uh, 400 plus year old issue that we as a people, as a nation have never really unpacked. And it was really important to me that it was fully integrated. And so when I think about that, I think from the board all the way down to our frontline employee base. So, you know, thinking about that holistically that way, but also knowing that we didn't have all the answers and those answers, some of them are going to come slowly, but knowing that there were other people out there beyond animal welfare that had more experience than we did and tapping them. And I think that's a really important lesson. And Jose, why don't you spend a few minutes talking about how we engaged with the national health care company, health insurance company, and really pulled one of their top leaders in to do some pro bono work for us in the very beginning. That was really cool. You know, we're really lucky that one of the people on our team, um, Vicki Kilmer, used to work at, and a lot of people actually from Best Friends came from Blue Cross Blue Shield in Florida. And so they worked with a man named Matt Keyes, who now works for Aetna, I believe. And he, this is what he does um, in terms of community partnerships, really focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And he did a lot of this work when he was at Blue Cross Blue Shield. And so Vicki Kilmer connected us to him, and he, as a volunteer, kind of really said, here are the lessons we've learned, here are the things. He's the one who actually said, you know, it's really important that there is, you know, a connection between these culture councils and your decision-making body at Best Friends, which is Julie and her senior leadership team. And so that was, a. I remember you, me, and him were on a call, and we were like, wow, that's not baked into our plan at all yet. And so we asked staff to apply to be on these councils. And we asked people to also apply if they were interested in what we're calling the co-chairs, which are the leadership roles within this whole effort. And me and Matt actually interviewed everybody and really had had that kind of like one-on-one conversations with folks to really understand what their experiences, what their backgrounds were, what why they want to do this work. Because we knew that, especially for the inaugural kind of group, it was going to be really important to have these co-chairs be diverse, diverse in their background. We really want people to come with the right intentions to approach this work. We're very lucky that we were able to do that. And I think sometimes in this work, we don't, we don't do this work because we don't have staff, we don't have budget to hire, the, which can be very expensive consultants. But I would encourage folks to look at their volunteer base, see who has this experience within your volunteer base who can help really do this work because so much of this work, we have not increased headcount at Best Friends to actually achieve this work. We've been working within our resources to advance all of this work. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a demonstration of us really, really integrating this fully. And I mean, so to have uh, over 200 people apply to be part of the Culture Council and then choose 60 people and really integrate it into every single area of our work. That that was really important to me. And Jose, one of my favorite concepts right now is as you look at American industry since this country started, it's really gone through three phases. And, and I read about this the other day, and it just was is fascinating to me. 
uh, you know, we started as a country baked in, we started with our muscles. So we started in farming, we started in factories and industry, and then we went to exercising our brains and that meant assembly lines and technology and the internet and what have you. And now companies are really integrating, leading with and exercising the heart. And I think that is paramount to success. You are only as good and only as strong as the staff that shows up every day to advance your mission. Jose, talk to us about that concept and what that means to you and how it fits in with all this that we're talking about. I think it really fits in. We're finding that the workforce, this sense of belonging, and which really is another way to talk about inclusion, is really important to our workforce. And everything about diversity, equity, inclusion, it's a very personal journey. You, we, I've had to have some real honest conversations with myself about biases that I didn't know were there, that I'm starting to unpack and uncover. And the reality is this work is personal and it starts with us. And one of the things we say at Best Friends whenever we're doing you know, town halls and we're doing panels of staff to talk about one of the dimensions of diversity, we say this is about opening up your mind and your heart listen and consider someone else's experience that's different than yours. By hearing and listening from those those experiences, might that change what you think and might those thoughts change your behaviors and will those new behaviors give us better and new outcomes? Because at the end of the day, we all just want to belong. We all just want to know that where we are, that the people that we work with care about us, that what we do matters. And I think that's why diversity, equity, and inclusion impacts everybody, because at the core of it, we're really talking about a sense of belonging. I'm really excited to bring one of my friends, colleagues, and someone who has really helped shape the work we're doing here at Best Friends as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that is James Evans, CEO and Creative Director of Care, that's Companioned and Animals for Reform and Equity. James, my friend, how are you? Hello, Jose. Thank you for your time. I know you are incredibly in demand right now. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't think I'm in demand. I think, thankfully, I think we're at a precipice of trying to understand where to go next in this country as far as inclusion and diversity are concerned. But I, you know, I love you and um, I think we're doing great work together and we'll continue because it's a lot of work to do. Yeah. And I know you've been really at the forefront of a lot of conversations with a lot of different animal welfare and non-animal welfare organizations about diversity, equity, and inclusion over the past, like, eight, nine months. I know CARE is still in its beginning um, stages of an organization and yet has been really front and center. So I'm wondering what have been some of the key learnings thus far about like insights from your conversations? I think is one, it's important, even as a, you know, a subject matter expert, right? We're, we're all still learning so much. The thing that I I am so happy to learn in, in doing this work is that there's so many people of color that are already doing the work. What, even if, whether or not they're doing it in their own communities or whether or not they're, they're doing the work within other organizations. Um, for instance, this year, I, I met a Keisha that you know, was formerly with Best Friends and now is with another organization, but she's a fantastic attorney. 
I met uh, last night. We had a, a great Zoom with Dr. Courtney and Noah and Milo. And Noah is a young man. He's got 450,000 followers on Instagram. Young Afri African-American man. And he has a support dog. And it was just so nice to both hear them, but see other people enjoying their sort of life stories, even the part of life stories that were, I think, difficult to hear because both of them have, you know, experienced racism. The other thing that we continue to learn is how much work this is. This is a lot of work. You know, these conversations are only the beginning, the struggles we have around racism and lack of diversity in this country are ever present. They're not just going to vanish, right? Women are still making on the dollar less than men. And these are things we, we need to solve and they're not going to go away overnight. So I think what sort of we're, what we're relearning is that this is a lot of work, but there are lots of inspiring people out there. And I, I just can't wait to bring more of them to the forefront. Yeah. And from all these conversations and meeting folks, like what stands out to you now that didn't before in terms of like, where are we getting stuck and where's progress being made? <sighs> you know, I think I will tell you one of the places I see us getting stuck and it's, this is going to be, this is a struggle. It's almost a chicken and an egg kind of thing where we're getting stuck. I think having conversations amongst ourselves in this field and that by and large means amongst white women, right? We're having conversations, um, not so much at Best Friends, but I think at other organizations where we're not going to get to the heart of where we really need to go and with DEI if people of color are not at the table, not a part of the conversation. You can, as earnestly as you, as you want, want to solve the problem, but people of color must be part of that conversation and must be leading those conversations. And I think in dominant culture, often what we tend to do is we want to fix a problem as quickly as possible. Um, we want to, we recognize that this is a problem, whether it was George Floyd or Amar Arbery or whatever came, came, comes to mind, we see this and we want to get out there really quickly and solve it and get past it. And you know, we're signing up for DEI courses and all of that is great. But the reality is, is that part of the problem with dominant culture is that it's so dominant. And if, if minorities aren't part of that conversation, then we're really not going to get to that next level where real inclusion and diversity happens. And I would say if you don't have a lot of uh, minorities around you to be part of the conversation, Zoom is awesome. Um, the other awesome thing is the lived experience through narrative. There are amazing, amazing books by people of color and other marginalized groups. And hearing those stories and ob observing those stories is, is really the next step in moving forward. So I wouldn't say that we're stuck. I think we just need to stop thinking that this is something that can be trained away, that there's one course that we can take um, when really we have to change the way we think about our life structure think about who's in our lives, think about why they're in our lives and how adding new people can add to our lives. Because if there is a place that we get stuck, it's in this concept that diversity inclusion are singularly for the minority. 
And really being inclusive brings richness to your own life and to your own organization. And so if we can get past that concept that we're doing folks a favor, um, as opposed to adding, it's additive to us as an organization and as a person, I think we'll go leaps and bounds from there. Yeah, that's so true. And, and I think for the group and the folks listening, when we say people of color and we talk about diversity, we also mean all the dimensions of diversity. You know, I know, I know a lot of times we'll speak in those terms because that is the house the most on fire right now. So I think it's appropriate. Um, but for all of you who um, I know are thinking about it, when we talk about diversity, we mean like the comprehensive, all the various protected classes, anyone who is marginalized. So just as we talk about this, just know that that's the context behind it. And James, you and I have talked about some of the, like what you talked about, the challenge of wanting to jump in and solve a really, really complex problem. And I, we've talked about in animal welfare, how it's because lives are on the line, right? Like we were, we're working to save lives and the clock is ticking in some cases. And so there's this kind of sense of urgency that comes with the work we're doing. And I think it's sometimes important to take a step back and see that may serve that sense of urgency could serve us in when it comes to saving a life, but that same urgency does not serve us when we're trying to talk about how to really work on bridging the, the gaps that are there from a diversity, equity, and inclusion space. Would you agree to that? I, I, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. I mean, but it's it's I think it's this feel, but I think there's also something about this country. We're very connected to productivity. And, and unfortunately, those kind of concepts are very much attached to factory farming, this idea that we've got to do things in gross, we've got to get things organized, you know, these animals can't have a life. So we've got to put them in cages and keep everything organized so that we can, you know, keep things going and, and meet deadlines and get, you know, things delivered. And it's a really, it's, it's antithetical to building emotional intelligence. And that's really what the DE&I work is really about is building emotional intelligence. If you're lucky enough to already be gifted with it, great. But if you don't have that, it takes time. You have to synthesize yourself to that. And I'm glad you 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 mentioned the other marginalized groups because part of the research that we did with Project Implicit from Harvard that some of you have probably participated in that survey that went out. The unfortunate thing about it is that the the group of people that are the most marginalized in this country are people that have social economic struggles. So if you if you look at the survey results, the bias level in this field, not in the country, this was specific to animal welfare, the bias is essentially we're okay with, with white folks. The next level down is we're kind of okay with Spanish-speaking Latino folks. We really don't like Black folks so much in terms of bias, but the folks we really struggle with are people that are underserved, people in social economic class. And so if you happen to be two of those things, you know, Spanish speaking, Latin and underserved or African-American and and underserved or, or white and underserved, it stacks accordingly. And so we really, really struggle with disconnecting poverty from other negative things like criminality and intelligence. And so I think we really have to do a better job of not associating poverty with with sort of the ills, right? Because you can 
be underserved and still be a genius. Genius is proportional, right? And so I think we need to do a much, much better job of thinking about our people who are struggling in particular and not thinking of them as associated with some other negative ill. I can listen to you talk all day because I always learn something and I just really appreciate how you're framing this and how um, giving us in this industry kind of some food for thought and and so that we can think about things differently so that we can act differently and therefore our outcomes are different, which is at the end of the day, what we're, what we're after, new, better, different outcomes. We have some questions from our audience. There's, here's one that I thought was, was interesting. Um, and it comes from Kim who says, as an animal welfare organization, how do you balance taking a bold stance publicly on social justice issues and retaining donors? For example, if an organization posts on social media aligning directly with Black Lives Matter, they may lose large donors, thus countering their mission to help animals. So Julie, I'm kind of curious your take on this because this is something, this is a very real scenario. What do you think? Listen, I, I feel like you guys who have known best friends and known us for a long time. I feel like we've gone through stages of maturing through this where, you know, it's kind of like you're a teenager and you're worried about what people think. That was best friends of 2005, 2006. And I feel like what we discovered along the way, and we made a lot of mistakes, especially as social media became a part of our lives and we had to figure out how to relate to it. And we went through through some really tough things. But what we discovered is that when we weren't being totally authentic to what we believe and what we want, I don't care how big your organization is, people are going to suss that out and you're going to be, you just need to speak your truth. And the people who are behind you will follow. You're going to lose people, but you know what? maybe those people are a better fit somewhere else. And I think that's really what we just came to. And also invite those conversations with those donors. I had a ton after we came out with our statement. And once there was that opportunity to have a dialogue, they were like, oh yes, of course, this makes sense. They will respect you more and you will see more loyalty from them. Yeah, and what, one of the things I'm adding to the chat for everybody is a link to um, a state, you know, it gives more context on our website as to why this work intersects with our actual mission, why this isn't mission creep, you know? And because that is something that some folks were concerned about in the beginning. And so we knew we needed to bring people along and articulate our why. And so I put that link in there. So that may help those of you as you're developing your why of why are we doing this work? As Julie says, it's about doing the right thing. And we do not see this as being political. We see this as being like being diverse, equitable, and inclusive is not political. It is doing the right thing. You know, saying something like Black Lives Matter Black Lives Matter. <laughs> That's not a political statement. Things become politicized. People politicize things. And so I think that that's some of um, where we come from, from that perspective. So let's see. One of the other questions is, what process did you use to select your 60 council members from the 200 applicants? We worked with um, CARE and Matt Keyes, the, uh, the man I talked earlier with Julie about, to really design an application, you know? And so we had everyone apply and answered some general demographic informations that were optional about their dimensions of diversity. It's really important that it remains optional. 
we also just wanted to know their why, like, why are you interested in this work? What life experience do you have in this work that will help you inform and lead this work? And then what we did to also remove the bias is we at Best Friends were very connected to each other. So we actually asked James Evans and Care to actually take that. And he created kind of a scoring system. And then he made the recommendation on, all right, here are based on their answers, some of their demographic mixes. Here's who I'm recommending you start with um, in terms of the the 60 people. Mm -hmm. For the leadership roles, those co-chairs, those were interviews. People on the application indicated whether they were interested in a leadership role. We asked why. And then we interviewed every single person who said they were interested in a leadership role. And we, again, just more personal, trying to really understand who they are and what they're bringing, um, what kind of energy and experience they're bringing to this so that we could have a really solid group. So I, I always describe like the councils and figuring out who also went on each council. We we knew um, ahead of time that we were going to have these six kind of buckets, these six themes. So we asked people to rate like, what's your first, second, and third choice? And it was like wedding chart seating. It was literally like, okay, we're trying to put everyone where they're interested in. We're trying to make sure there's diversity amongst all of the councils. So um, it felt very wedding chart seating, but I'm so glad we took the time and effort to put the thought behind it. You know, and one of the things that was also something that we considered is we know in animal welfare, when we think about the folks in leadership roles, coming from diverse backgrounds is an area that we need to be better at. You know, we know that there is diversity in animal welfare and we're starting to learn from some of the data that CARE is even collecting that most leadership positions are, that's where the diversity decreases the more senior the position. And so I went, when we were building this and I knew that this was going to be part of Julie's CEO advisory group, it was also important to me that we put people in these leadership roles as also this development opportunity for all of you to be able to go on these calls and, and have, you know, share your knowledge and your expertise and give you a platform so that we're also developing a pipeline of talent. So it's everything is intentional. It's like, how do we layer intentionality and how does everything we do have depth in it? So yes, this is the collective, but also how do we help this group of people advance should they want to by giving them this exposure and opportunity? So I I would encourage everyone to be as thoughtful and well-rounded as you can. James, my final question for you is, CARE has been doing some incredible work and what's next for CARE? What should we come to, what should we expect to see? How can we support CARE, you know, um, this next year? Big picture wise, it's CARE centers. Um, We're calling them CARE centers, but really what we're doing is traveling to communities and looking for new leaders. So, you know, on one hand, we're working with organizations like Best Friends and others to really understand DEI um, and changing the culture of what it looks like to be diverse in animal welfare. That's a lot of work. It's gonna be slow growing grass as someone said to me, Um, but it is happening and it's obviously happening at Best Friends. But at the same time, we wanna find where the new leaders are, where the people that have been um, sort of overlooked and right now we're focused in Atlanta. And so far we found four leaders of color, and we're also supporting another. So there are five people in total. Each one of those folks are getting their own 501c3. In the next couple of months, we're going to have five new organizations of color that we help start in Atlanta. And so just to be clear, 
um, they won't be call, calling themselves care centers. We're calling them care centers. Like I call you guys my friends, but you all have your own individual names, right? So Sterling Trap King Davis is one of those care centers that we're supporting. And there are two, four other ones. And so each one of them will have their own 501c3. Um, the idea is that folks in their own communities know their communities best. So you have Tim in Atlanta, who is a natural born behaviorist, dog behaviorist. He's award winning and he has a uncanny, uncanny ability to understand animals. So his care center is going to be very focused on helping his neighbors and friends with behavioral issues with their, with their pets. Each person has their own individual skill set. And so uh, Stanford calls them proximate leaders, people who know their community and have the best chance of helping communities around them. So best friend is up here at a macro 30,000 foot level and care centers are at a micro level. And so we really want to bring all that information we have and scatter it across the country in small communities, starting with the ones that are the most uh, underserved. Wow, how I, we're so lucky to have you and CARE really leading this effort. And, um, and I also have to say like you and Jen, who is not on this call today, but she yeah. is your COO and wife and brilliant and wife. mind. And so also thank you to you and Jen for all this work. Thank you all for being here, Julie. Thank you for, you know, just really making this an organizational priority. It, I think we all talk about this, this would not be possible without the support of leadership. And it's that leadership support that kind of gives us the win to be able to do this work. So I don't know if you have anything you would like to say before we close out. Um, I just feel again, right place at the right time. I, you know, we have this incredible diverse team internally that I'm so incredibly grateful to led by you, Jose. You are a dynamic superstar. And I, it's an honor for me to work with all you guys. And this is gonna be a journey. This isn't gonna change overnight. We need to keep working on it. As I said at the beginning, the full town halls are up on the website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. Those committees you heard about, the full town halls had representatives from those different committees. You can hear from them directly, bestfriends.org slash podcast. Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, Whitney Blyton, and Mark Peralta are the producers of the Best Friends Podcast, and my name is John Dunn. 